Well, good morning, church. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. As always, if you forgot your Bible or didn't have enough hands to bring one in, you can always grab one in the back or out in the lobby. Um, but yeah, happy, happy December. We've made it. You guys have awoken out of a turkey coma and you are here today. Uh, so like Dad was saying, this is the first week of Advent. Uh, Advent is the season of the weeks kind of leading up to Christmas. It starts the fourth Sunday leading up to Christmas, and it ends on Christmas Eve. And for those that aren't familiar with the term Advent uh, or have forgotten what it means, the word Advent means arrival. And so it is the season of Advent. It is the days leading up to Christmas that we remember Jesus' first Advent, his first arrival when the second person of the trinity who had eternally existed he put on flesh and was born in a manger but not only do we remember his first arrival his first advent but we also anticipate and look forward to his second arrival his second advent when jesus will return to earth and restore all things and so there's nothing wrong with maybe enjoying some of the cultural holidays, uh, like, you know, putting up decorations and decorating cookies and giving gifts and gathering with family. But we as followers of Jesus, we don't have to just settle for those things. And we don't have to allow ourselves to be taken captive by them, but we get to press into some even deeper joys by allowing even our cultural traditions to ultimately point us to Jesus. And the verse that the Lord has laid on my heart to pray for you this month is, is what Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 2, verse 8, which we'll have here up on the screen. And he, and he, and he wrote, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so that's what I'm going to pray over us uh, this morning as we enter into this season of Advent, as, as we enter into the month of December. We're going to pray that we would not be taken captive uh, by what's going on around us, but that we would be captivated by Christ in this season. So let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into uh, the message. Father God, we do thank you for today. We thank you for uh, coming out of a week where we got to uh, redirect our attention and give thanks. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we know who we give thanks to. And we give thanksgiving to you uh, for all the ways that you have provided for us and you have blessed us and you have sustained us this past year. Lord, as we enter into this season of Advent, I I realize uh, the, the, the chaotic nature and the pace at which our, our culture moves through this month. And so, Lord, I ask that we would not be, we would not be taken captive uh, by those things, but we ultimately ask that they would point us to you, Lord Jesus, that we would remember your first advent, your first arrival, and we would long and we would wait and we would look forward to your second arrival and advent. And so we ask that this month, Lord, uh, that we would truly be captivated by you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I ask as we, as we uh, uh, preach through your word and as we receive your word that you would, you would bless this, Lord, that we ask Holy Spirit that you would uh, open up our, 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 our ears and our hearts to, to hear these words and to receive them. May they take deep root in our life. And I ask that, uh, Lord, I would not get in the way of anything that you are trying to speak to your people today, God. Uh, but I ask that it would be your word that would go forth and that they would remember as they go out from this place. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, one of the many uh, holiday traditions that you might experience this month, all right, uh, it might be you would start enjoying some holiday movies, okay? And most of you probably have a few movies that are your go-to movies uh, for this month uh, that kind of bring up some of the nostalgic feelings and all the good holiday feels for you. And so maybe for you, maybe it's one of the classics like It's a Wonderful Life or a Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, uh, maybe it's something like Holiday Inn or White Christmas. Um, 
We got a Holiday Inn. Yeah, I got eye contact there. All right. Uh, maybe, or maybe for you, maybe it's like the Muppets uh, Christmas Carol that kind of brings back some childhood memories. Or, or maybe you go to some of these movies because it, it feels kind of warm and comforting to be around some of the familiar characters that you've spent past Christmases with. Characters like Uncle Eddie or Ralphie with his Red Ryder BB gun or even maybe Buddy the Elf. Or maybe in this past month you've watched uh, these movies about a young boy named Kevin who keeps getting left home alone. And I won't share the name of the movies uh, uh, with you. I don't want to give anything away. Uh, but there's five of them. I don't know if you realize this. There's five. I thought there was only three. Uh, but there are five of these movies, which you would think that after three times, CV CPS uh, would be called maybe. And uh, uh, the parents keep leaving him home alone. What's going on? All uh, right. But, but in the original movie, Kevin, he's the youngest uh, member of his family. And it's a big family. And they're all getting ready to take a Christmas trip to Paris, uh, which we can all totally relate with, right? Like that's uh, like you just, it, it gets hectic, these, these Christmas trips to Paris, right? It gets stressful. You get for, very forgetful. Uh, but in the end, Kevin, he gets, he ends up getting left home alone, right? He essentially gets abandoned. Now the movie gives us some laughs along the way. It ends well. It's all good. And this, but this, this funny kind of movie plot of getting left home alone, it actually points out one of the pain points for many people during the holiday season. You, you see, for many people, the, the holidays, it, it brings, it's, it becomes difficult and painful because it can be a reminder of ways that they have been either abandoned or left by people that they deeply care about. And we've all, to some degree or another, we've all, to some degree, experienced this. We've all, to some degree or another, have at times felt abandoned or we have felt like people have left us all alone. Maybe it's a loved one who has passed away. And the holidays are a reminder that that person is not there with you like they have been in the past. Maybe it's a, a parent, or maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child that has abandoned the family, and the holidays bring that reminder that that person has left, and they are not there to celebrate with you. And maybe the holidays bring up a reminder of, of, of friendships, like you had a close friendship, but then that person hurt you so deeply that the relationship seems like it can't be repaired, and the holidays kind of bring that reminder of that person that's no longer in your life. And maybe because you felt abandoned by people and you've been left so many times, maybe you come to the holidays and you can even be tempted to feel like God has abandoned you. Like God has left you. You've got, you get the decorations out and you start entering into the season and you can feel like you're all alone in life. You might have people all around you, maybe at, fam at family stuff or at church stuff or at work stuff. You might have people all around you, but there's still that strange feeling. Even when you're in a crowd of people, you can still feel incredibly alone. You can feel alone. And if that's how you feel or if you, if you have ever felt that way, I believe Jesus has a good word for you this morning. And I'm not really preaching a, a Christmas or an Advent-themed sermon today, uh, but really I am, because as we are continuing to preach through uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, we're picking it up in Mark 15, verse 21, which, if you've looked ahead, you'll notice we are coming to the end of Mark, which we have been preaching through the last two years, and uh, next week will be the last week uh, in, in Mark. But this sort of is a Christmas sermon because we arrive at the crucifixion of Jesus. And really, this is why Jesus came to earth. This is why he was born in a manger. But, but the reason that I say if you've ever felt abandoned or if you've ever, ever felt left like you're all alone, that Jesus has a good word for you is because verse 34, Mark 15, verse 34 in our passage, Jesus is going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
To forsake someone means to turn away from them. If you are forsaken, it means you've been abandoned, you've been deserted, you've been left all alone. And and the good news this morning is that we are going to see what was accomplished for us when Jesus was willingly forsaken for you and for me. So are you guys ready? This is a heavy text, but this is also a glorious text. So look with me at, at Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Okay, Jesus, right, he's just been uh, uh, flogged, he's been mocked, he's been beaten, right? He has now uh, become just so physically weak that they have to uh, get a bystander to carry his cross for him. And that word compelled, the word compelled means forced into service. Okay, this wasn't like looking for volunteers, right? Uh, uh, Many of you, when we first started the church, you were compelled to serve in kids' ministry, right? It's like, we don't do that anymore. We encourage you now. But at first, we had to compel, all right? So this isn't, the Romans aren't looking for volunteers, right? They, they They are compelling. They are forcing Simon to serve and carry uh, the cross of Jesus, and, and, and think about Simon for a moment. I mean, Simon, he's from North Africa. He's likely traveled into town to celebrate the Passover. He's minding his own business. And now the Roman soldiers have forced him to carry the cross of Jesus. And let me quickly point out something that is, it is sort of interesting. It's, it's that John Mark includes Simon's son's names, Alexander and Rufus which are two quality names, right? But it's, it's unusual for John Mark to, to mention them unless John Mark knows who they are and the readers of Mark's gospel, the original readers, would know who they are. Okay, And so it's likely that they did, because we know uh, when Paul uh, wrote to the church in Rome, uh, who was also, they were the original recipients of Mark's gospel as well, Paul wrote in Romans sixteen thirteen. he says, Greet Rufus! chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. And so it can't be proven, but it's thought that this is likely the same Rufus. And so it's just interesting to point out that this Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus's cross and being present at the crucifixion, that that likely had such a dramatic effect, not only on Simon, but on his boys, that they would all become followers of Jesus and be part of the early church. Look back at verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Okay, it's it's Advent. Does does anything in those two verses remind you of Jesus' first Advent? And it's not the place of a skull. It's not that. Right? But the myrrh, the myrrh, right? You remember three kings, right? You remember the song, right? And what did they bring? They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was a symbolic gift, a gift that you gave to a king, right? Uh, Frankincense was a symbol of his deity. It's something that was burned when worshiping God. And myrrh, myrrh was an anointing or an embalming oil pointing to his death. And so even at Jesus' birth, the gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it was pointing to the fact that Jesus is a king who is God who is going to die for his people. But here we see myrrh. It's mixed, mixed with wine, which was given to people before they were crucified to help numb some of the pain. But Jesus refused it. He's not trying to escape any of the pain. He's not trying to lessen any of the suffering. And look back at verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The the third hour is 9 a.m. 
or 0900 for our military families. I'm good with military time until noon. After that, it gets a little dicey. Uh, but 0900, it's 9 a.m., right? That was a joke. Thank you for people who laughed. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's 9 a.m. Look at verse 26, right? And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, which is noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, when the sixth hour had come, which is noon, there was darkness that settled over the whole land until 3 p.m. Okay, three hours of darkness. Three hours of complete darkness. And this wasn't just like a cloud covering the sun. It wasn't just like an overcast day, okay? Because this wasn't just darkness that was localized to Jerusalem. But we actually have historical accounts from non-Christian historians throughout the known world as far as Rome and Athens that document this complete darkness for three hours. And some of them have tried to explain it away with like maybe it was a solar eclipse or something like that, but a solar eclipse wouldn't last for three hours. This was a supernatural darkness that set over the whole world. And remember again when this is happening. This is taking place during the Passover, which was a celebration of when God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And God had brought them out of Egypt with ten plagues. Does anyone remember what the ninth plague was? Darkness. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn sons. And so the ninth plague back in Egypt, it was three days of darkness, followed by the death of all the firstborn males, right? God's not trying to be subtle here. Jesus is our true Passover lamb, and we are being rescued from our slavery to Satan's sin and death uh, uh, by, by, by the death of God's son, which immediately followed three hours of complete darkness, Okay, you see how even the book of Exodus was pointing us to Jesus to get us ready for what's about to happen. The three days of darkness in Egypt was pointing to these three hours when God's son would be forsaken on our behalf. And look at, look at verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the question I have is, does Jesus really not know why this is happening? Right? I, I mean, I thought he knew the plan kind of all along. I thought he was willingly submitting to the Father's will to be the Lamb of God who's going to die for the sins of his people like, why does he ask, why have you forsaken me? Well, you see, Jesus is being forsaken. That is a, a, a true thing that's happening. But he knew why he was doing it. And it's been said by others that this is not a question of curiosity. It's a question of agony, right? He's not asking why, like, God, would you explain why this is happening? No, he's crying out in agony, and really he's quoting scripture, okay? He's quoting Psalm 22, which really much of Psalm 22 is pointing to Jesus. It was an original Psalm of David, but it's pointing to Jesus. And so let me just read some quick verses from Psalm 22, and you tell me if this sounds familiar, okay? Psalm 22, verse 1, we'll have it on the screen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18. 
Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does this sound familiar from what we just read in Mark, right? So, so Jesus knows why this is happening, but he's crying out in agony, and he's quoting Scripture saying this Psalm 22 is all being fulfilled, like right now. This is happening, right? But Jesus, Jesus knows. He knows why he's being forsaken. He knows being forsaken and being mocked and, and being pierced was not going to be the end of the story. Because he knows the rest of the psalm. And so Psalm 22, uh, we'll just go to verse 27 now. I, I cut one out. So just go to verse 27. Uh, the next one. Yeah. In Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And so this isn't a cry of curiosity, like, why, God? Like, explain yourself why this is happening. No, this is a cry of agony as Jesus is being forsaken by the Father so that people from the ends of the earth would turn to the Lord and all the nations would worship God. And you see, Jesus is in such agony here because he has never experienced the consequence of sin before. He had experienced physical uh, torture and pain. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had experienced some kind of emotional, you know, he was distraught. But now on the cross, he's taking upon himself all the sins of his people, and he's taking on the consequence of that sin, which the consequence of our sin is it separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. And Jesus takes upon himself the sins of his people, and he is now forsaken by the Father. But Jesus is not a helpless victim here. There are critics who will try to call this like some sort of cosmic child abuse, right? The Father abusing the Son. But the word abuse implies that Jesus was like a helpless victim, that he didn't have a say in this matter. And that's not true at all. We know Jesus, when speaking of his own life, he said in John verse 18, he said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is not being abused here, right? He's willingly enduring this on our behalf. And he willingly took upon our sins, and for a few hours he was forsaken by the Father, and it was a pain that he had never experienced before. And for a second, let's try to imagine what that pain was like, okay? Let's try to understand well, just how painful this forsakenness of Jesus would have been. Because think about our own life, okay? The, the closer we are to someone, the more painful it is when they leave, right? For example, if you met someone here this morning, if you were one of the, the five that got here before we started, right, and you met the other people, and... Uh, that, that was another joke as well, all right? And uh, let's say you met someone this morning, and you kind of, you know, introduced, you found out their name, just a little about them, and then they came to you after the service, and they were like, hey, uh, it's nice to meet you. I just don't want to hang out anymore. I mean, it would be a little awkward, right? It'd be like, oh, that's kind of rude. Like, you don't know me. You know, you just say, you know, maybe you need to work on your first impressions. I don't know. Like, that would be awkward. Uh, but you, you might be a little hurt today, but I'm guessing you wouldn't grieve for months over the loss of that relationship, right? You weren't that close. You just met one another. It hasn't been that long. And so it might hurt a little bit to lose that relationship, but you're not going to cry over it. Or, or for example, uh, if a, a colleague at work that you've worked alongside with for a little while, but you never hang out with them outside of work, let's say they got a new job and they leave and you don't really get to see them anymore. Well, that, that might hurt a little bit more because you, you know, worked alongside them, but, but you would eventually kind of get over it. You're not going to be grieved too much because you weren't that close with them. But if your spouse tells you they're leaving, 
if you've got a close family or friend who passes away, if you've got a best friend who has shut you out of their life, that is painful. Can't even describe that pain, right? Like our hearts just drop to the floor when we hear that. When we hear someone so close to us is, is leaving or, or they've passed or, or they've shut us out, like that is a big loss. That is painful. And I've heard it said, the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater it hurts when it's lost, right? The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater it hurts when it's lost. Now think about this for a second. Think about the forsakenness of Jesus because this goes to a whole new level, all right? Because Jesus and the Father had been for eternity past in communion with one another. That, that is a love that has gone a long time in the future, all right? Longer than our own lives, right? That has gone for a long time in the past, and that is a deep love that, that we're just kind of scratching the surface of real love. But it was a perfectly deep love and communion that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have had for eternity past. And Jesus, on the cross, willingly suffered the temporary loss of that relationship so that you and I would never have to be forsaken by God. Praise God. But that is a, that is a long love, that is a deep love that Jesus lost on the cross when he was forsaken by the Father. So church, but, but church, why? Why was the Son of God forsaken? so that you and I would never have to be forsaken by God. Jesus was willingly forsaken, abandoned, deserted, and left alone so that you and I and all those whose faith is in Jesus would be able to say, the Lord will never leave me or forsake me. Psalm 37, verse 28 It says, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. It's probably a good verse for this month for you to memorize, right? Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let that truth settle in a little bit to your heart, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Follower of Jesus, in your life, you might get abandoned by some people. Correction, you will get abandoned by some people. Parents might leave or pass away. Spouses might leave or pass away. Friends might leave or pass away. Kids might leave or pass away. But for followers of Jesus, we can trust that Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken by God. Well, you might be thinking, why can you say that? Why can you say that? Doesn't, doesn't sin separate me from God? And I still sin, and, and so aren't I still separated from God? Maybe that's what you're thinking, right? Like, like when I sin, I'm turning from the desires of God, so doesn't God have every right to still turn from me? Maybe you're thinking, I, I want a sign. I want some sort of sign. Like if only God would give us a sign uh, that shows us that people no longer have to be separated from the presence of God. Maybe he'll give us a sign. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, I don't move on unless you participate. All right, let's turn to their neighbor and say, neighbor, I'm looking for a sign. All right, let's go. Mark 15, verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now listen, you've got to understand a little bit about the curtain of the temple, okay? The curtain of the temple, it separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And the Holy of Holies was where God's presence, it dwelt on earth. And it was, it was only one time a year, and it was only the high priest that could go, it was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And that curtain was not just like a curtain like we think of a curtain, right? It wasn't just like a little shower curtain. It wasn't like that curtain uh, between, you know, first class and coach that you shut on your Christmas trips uh, to Paris, right? It's not those kinds of, of curtains, right? This curtain was approximately 60 feet high, and it was probably somewhere like four to six inches thick, okay? It was a big curtain, And when Jesus died and he yielded his spirit and he breathed his last breath, the curtain was torn in two, signifying that through the blood of Jesus, people could once again enter and dwell in the presence of God. And notice that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. 60 feet high in the air from top to bottom. This wasn't like the disciples kind of, you know, starting it, cutting it at the bottom, right? And just hoping it would kind of rip the rest away. And this wasn't like God uh, cutting it 90%, but then telling you to come and, and cut the last 10%, right? This is God all the way through from start to finish, ripping the curtain, ripping it open, making a way for us to once again flourish in the presence of God. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden, that ability to to walk with the Lord and to flourish in his presence. What was lost in the garden, it was regained by Christ. The way was made open once again for us to flourish in God's presence. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The curtain being torn in two, it signified that Jesus was a once and for all sufficient sacrifice for sin. No longer would every year we have to sacrifice an animal. Jesus' death on a cross was the once and for all sacrifice of sins. And now Jesus is our great high priest. He not only offers up a sacrifice on our behalf, but he is our sacrifice. And the curtain being torn in two, it it also signifies that no longer will the presence of God just be housed in a building or a structure, you know, built by men and women. No, now his presence is going to dwell in the hearts of his people. And we see this after his resurrection and ascension, that he sends the spirit to indwell his people. Church, when the curtain was torn in two, The temple and the whole sacrificial system was done away with, and now you and I are the ones in whom Christ dwells. The Spirit of God now dwells in us. And if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, then He will never leave you or forsake you because He dwells inside of you. Now this morning, we don't, we don't have time to go through all that Christ accomplished on the cross. But I, but I feel okay with that. You know, I kind of at first, you know, like we got to this passage, okay, we got to spend like a month on this, right? Uh, I feel okay going through it quickly because really every week, I hope we are preaching gospel-centered, cross-centered sermons where we are showing you different aspects of of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So we're not going to exhaustively cover this, but let me just drop a few quick things for you that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. One thing Jesus' death accomplished was it appeased the wrath of God. 
Now, this is not always popular to talk about, but it is true, okay, that our God is a just God. Our God is a just God. And I think, you know, down deep, we all know this, and we don't want, a, want to worship an unjust God. I think we all, you know, have a, a sense that, that God, yes, is a just God. I mean, just look at all the detective shows and the CSI, you know, I'm sure whatever city they're on to now, right, and, and uh, the courtroom shows. Like, like, think about all the shows that are on TV, and when you see those, like, the reason there are so many of those type of shows, I think it's because we are human beings created in the image of a just God, and we long for justice. We long for justice. When we hear of someone uh, being murdered or someone being raped or someone being abused, like, isn't there something that rises up in you that demands justice? And so when you see those commercials, like, be reminded, you are created in the image of a just God. And when sin is committed against God, he does not turn a blind eye to it. He does not sweep it under the rug. No one gets away with anything. God sees all and knows all, and he is a just God. But the beauty of the cross is that it is the place where God's justice and his love collide. Because although our sin was justly punishable by death. Jesus Christ took on flesh and took the punishment we deserved so that the justice of God would be upheld and at the same time, the love of God would be put on display. Is God a just God? Yes. Is he a loving God? Yes. Where do we learn about both of those? We look to the cross where his justice was upheld and his love was put on display. Now, not only does Christ's death on the cross appease the wrath of God, satisfy his justice, display his love, but it also makes possible for the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin. 1 John 1 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, that's both sin we've committed and sin that has been committed against us. We often don't think about the implications of that second one, right? But it is the precious blood of Christ that has been poured out for sin that gives hope for our wounds to be healed from both past sin that we've done and past sin that's been done to us. Those who have been abandoned, those who have been abused can run to Jesus and trust that first his justice will be carried out that the payment for sin was either going to be paid by Jesus on the cross or it will be paid in eternity in hell, right? But those who have been abandoned and abused, they can, they can run to Jesus and trust that justice will be carried out. No one got away with anything uh, that they did to wrong you. That thing that that happened in, in that room that no one knows about where someone hurt you, they didn't get away with it. And God's justice will be carried out. But not only can you trust that his justice will be carried out, you can trust and rest that his indwelling presence, the indwelling presence of Jesus will cleanse you from all past, present, and future sin, the sins you've committed and the sins that have been committed against you. We don't clean ourselves up and go to Jesus. We invite Jesus to dwell in us, and it is his holy presence that cleanses us from our sin, and it heals us of our wounds that we have. I know you guys have wounds from sin that's been committed against you. I have wounds from sin that's been committed against you. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. It's because of his wounds that we can be healed. Jesus' death on a cross had also accomplished the great exchange where he took our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He didn't just clear our account and then say, good luck the rest of the way. 
He actually credited his righteousness to us. This is why when Jesus was born in a manger, he didn't just immediately be sacrificed for sin. If all he really came to do was just die for sin, why live 33 years? It was so that he could live the life of perfect obedience that we have failed to live, and now his righteous life is credited to us. When we are clothed in his righteousness before God, it is all the good works of Christ. And so we often, you know, we don't say that we're saved by good works, but we actually are. But we're saved by the good works of Christ. Jesus' death on a cross had also accomplished our redemption our rescue from enslavement to sin. We, we no longer have to be enslaved uh, to Satan, sin, and death, right? Jesus on the cross, he disarmed and he defeated the enemy. And on the cross, Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to one another. It turned God's wrath to mercy. It turned God being against us to now he is for us. It made enemies of God into friends of God. It turned haters of God into lovers of God. Because look, look who it makes a believer. I've still got one more verse in Mark I'm preaching to you this morning, all right? Look who it makes a believer. You see, I think some of you, you haven't quite understood just how powerful Christ's death on the cross really was. Like, like some of you think that the message of the cross, it can save some people. Like it can maybe save some of the good, moral, polite people, but it's not powerful enough to save that person, right? It's not powerful enough to save so-and-so or, or whoever the Lord is bringing to your mind. Like the message of the cross isn't, isn't powerful to save them. Maybe some of these people, but not, not those people. Or maybe you don't believe that what Christ accomplished on the cross is really powerful enough to save you. Because you think maybe you've sinned too much for God to love and save you. You've been left and abandoned too many times and you're sure that God will be the next one to leave you once he really gets to know you. But look who at the foot of the cross becomes a believer. Look at Mark 15 verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let me point out something to you this morning that you maybe didn't realize. These last two years as we've been preaching through the book of Mark, I'm sure you remember the first sermon we preached in Mark from Mark 1, verse 1. But if not, I'll remind you, okay? Mark 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Ever since Mark 1, verse 1, we have been longing for a human being to recognize and declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first believer after Jesus' death, the first one that Mark records declaring who Jesus truly was. Yes, the disciples claimed that he was the Christ, but in it, Mark never recorded them calling him the Son of God. L look who this first believer was. It was an unlikely person. It was a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion would have been a rough and gruff kind of guy. Uh, this, this would have likely been a hardened and a brutal man. A centurion was someone who had risen up in the ranks of the Roman military, who had likely killed and crucified hundreds, if not thousands of people. Okay, a centurion wasn't the choir boy of the culture, okay? A centurion was not the Ned Flanders. He wasn't the, the, the good, polite, moral person that you think God could save. No, this was like the person that you would think there's no way God could save that person. And yet after seeing and witnessing Jesus' death on the cross, he's the first to proclaim that Jesus is God. And I imagine there are people in your life that you think and hope and pray that God would save. And then there are another group of people in your life that are like the Roman centurion that you think there's no way God will save them. And may I challenge you this morning 
and tell you that the kingdom of God is usually made up of unlikely citizens. It is usually the unlikely who become citizens of the kingdom. I mean, here in this passage, you would expect it to be kind of the Pharisees or the religious people that would finally kind of come to their senses and put things together about the plagues in Psalm 22, and they would like figure out, oh, hey, Jesus is who he said he was. But it's not the religious. It's the Roman centurion who saw God's justice and love put on display on the cross, and it caused him to believe. And so I feel like we just need to pray right now. This isn't the end of the sermon. I'm nearing the end, okay, so everyone just calm down. But let me, let, just, let's, let's pray for a second, but this isn't a closing prayer, okay? I know it's a little unusual. Let's bow your head and let's pray. I think we need to pray. Father, I, we thank you for the power of the cross. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bring to mind right now people in our life that we think there is no way God could save them. Lord, who are the Roman centurions in our lives that we think are too far from God? Too far to to pray for and to, to share the gospel with and show love and grace to. Lord, who are those people? Bring those people to mind that we think, Lord, that there's no way you can save them. God, I ask that you would save them. And I ask that you would give us faith to believe that you can save them. And I ask that you give us courage and boldness to proclaim your good news. And I ask that it would awaken their hearts to faith. May we put the cross of Christ in front of them and Lord, may they believe and declare that you, Jesus, are the Son of God. Would you do a great work, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I am winding down. That wasn't a halftime prayer, okay? But Jesus, listen, Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we would no longer be separated from the presence of God. And for those in whom Christ dwells, we can trust that God will never leave us or forsake us. A journalist named Ellen Vaughn, she wrote a book titled The God Who Hung on the Cross. And in it, she wrote a story uh, about how the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia to an unlikely group of converts. And it was September 1999, and there was a pastor who was traveling through these villages in Cambodia. Now, most people in that area, uh, they were practicing Buddhism or Spiritism. Uh, Christianity was really unheard of, and in most places the pastor went, he was not welcomed. Uh, People were antagonistic towards hearing about Jesus. But to this pastor's surprise, he came to this one small village in northern Cambodia, and the people warmly embraced him and his message about Jesus. They just couldn't get enough of it. They wanted to hear more and more from him. And he asked the villagers, like, why they were so open to the gospel, right? Like, everywhere else he went, he was not being greeted. He was being, you know, persecuted. And here this village welcomed him, and he said, he wanted to know why. Why are you welcoming this message of the gospel? And an older woman, she shuffled forward. She grabbed his hand and kind of bowed, you know, before him. And she said, we've been waiting for you for 20 years. He's like, okay, can you explain that a little bit? Explain that. 
And you see, in the 1970s, there was a brutal communist-led regime that, was, that took over Cambodia and was going through these villages and just destroying and killing and pillaging everything in its path. And the soldiers got to this little village, and when they did, they rounded up all the villagers, and they forced the villagers to start digging their own graves. I mean, can you, can you imagine having to dig your own grave? And, and as the villagers had, had finished digging, they, they started just preparing themselves to die, starting preparing what was about to happen. And some were screaming to Buddha. Some were uh, screaming to other demonic spirits or their ancestors. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's allergies. Um, but one of the women started to cry out to a God that she had heard about from her mother, from a childhood memory. And you see, this woman's mother had had a dream or had heard a story about a God who had hung on a cross. And the woman prayed to that unknown God on a cross. She cried out to this God who had hung on a cross. For surely, if this was a God who had hung on a cross, this was a God who had known suffering. This was a God who had known what it was like to be forsaken. And surely this God would, would have compassion on their suffering and their forsakenness. And so she started crying out to this God who had hung on a cross. And suddenly all the villagers started praying to God. And they started crying out to this God who had hung on a cross, who was no stranger to suffering. And they cried out to him to have compassion on them. And as they looked at their own graves, they continued to cry out, and their wailing slowly turned into a quiet cry. And as they slowly got the courage to turn and face their captors, they saw that they were all gone. And the elderly woman told this pastor that for 20 years, they had been waiting every day for someone to come and share with them the rest of the story about this God who had hung on a cross. Like God is in the business of miraculously saving people through the power of the cross. And that pastor got to share with the villagers that the unknown God who had hung on a cross, that his name is Jesus. That Jesus suffered and was forsaken by God so that we could be welcomed in as sons and daughters. That Jesus suffered and was forsaken and therefore has compassion on those who've been abandoned. He has compassion on those who've been mistreated and abused or are suffering, who have been left uh, multiple times. He's a God who has compassion because he's a God who's familiar with suffering. He's familiar with being forsaken, and he does not leave us or forsake us, but instead he is with us in our suffering. He dwells with us in our suffering. Jesus suffered and was forsaken so that we would no longer be separated from the presence of God and for those in whom Christ dwells, we can trust that God will never leave us or forsake us. And my prayer for, for you this morning is that the Spirit would bring your sin to the surface. And that you would see the grave that you've dug for yourself and deserve to be buried in. But I also pray that the Spirit would enable you to call upon the God who hung on a cross. That you would call upon the name of Jesus who was forsaken so that you would not have to be. Who was wounded so that you could be healed. And I pray that you would invite his spirit to dwell inside of you and that you may know and rest and trust that he will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray.